welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today I'm speaking with Jeremy Seal. Jeremy is the author of six books, including A Fez of the Heart and A Coup in Turkey. He's been described as England's preeminent travel writer on Turkey, a country he's been exploring since 1984. It's a place that's always loomed large in the Western imagination, from the, the days of the fearsome Ottoman Empire and its clashes with uh, the Crusaders of the Christian West, to more recent questions over whether Turkey should join the European Union. I was astonished by the sheer number of peoples whose stories have played out here, from the Hittites, the Phrygians, the Persians, to the, to the modern Turks, who came from distant lands in, in Central Asia to colonize this territory. I really enjoyed talking with Jeremy about this seam between cultural worlds, this land that exists on the fringes of Europe and Asia and takes in uh, influences from the entire surrounding region to create something something really unique, something that's fascinating and endlessly interesting for the traveler and also for the reader. We spoke about the infinite courtesies of Turkish hospitality, cultural divides, and the legacy of the 1960 military coup. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Jeremy Seal, welcome to Personal Landscapes. It's great to uh, to talk to you. I just finished reading A Coup in Turkey, and I really enjoyed it. It's a country I know very little about. Like I've been there once, maybe ten years ago. I think it was a. Uh, it was just a press trip, so it was sort of a scratch the surface sort of thing. I came away with a bit of a bit more curiosity, but very little deeper knowledge about the country. So reading your book was um, was a great stimulant to to further journeys. I read uh, I reread the earlier two books as well. Turkey has always loomed large in the Western imagination, in a sense, like it, it's it was part of the Greek world, the place from which Persian invasions flowed. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was sort of the scourge of Christianity and, and greatly feared. Uh, Turkey's been a source of migrant workers for a country like uh, like Germany, where I'm based. There's a strong Turkish population here in Berlin. And then it's been sort of a, a country that the EU dangles a carrot to every once in a while in the hopes of, I don't know, making them more like the West in a sense. Uh, so before we venture into modern Turkey and the territory of your, new, your newest book, uh, maybe you can sketch a picture for me of just how culturally diverse this region was. Like that's one of the things that really stood out for me in Meander, your, your journey down the, the river that gave wandering its, uh, its term or name. Yeah, of course, Ryan. It, it, it would be a pleasure to do that. I mean, of course, I had no sense of that diversity when I first went to Turkey, which was back in the 1980s as a young man, fresh out of university. And only very gradually did I begin to acquire a kind of a greater sense of that diversity that you talk of. And of course, the old trope about Turkey has always been that it's the bridge between East and West, by which I guess they mean the kind of cultures of Asia and Europe. More specifically, I suppose, Persia, ancient Iran in the East and Greece, ancient Greece in the West. And of course, history begins with those two cultures clashing, um, not not exactly over Anatolia, but certainly on the edges of Anatolia back in the uh, back five, six hundred years uh, before Christ. But of course, it's more than that, because if you look at the map, you then get a sense that 
there's not only this east-west thing going on, but I think as interestingly, although not quite as headline, there's this north-south thing going on as well, which is Russia immediately to the north, which bears uh, really interestingly on Turkey and the way on, on Turkey's makeup and cultural feel. And of course, Arabia to the south as well. And of course, areas of all of these um, regions, if you like, of these cultures were incorporated into, um, into what is now Turkey at various stages in the long history of the land. And I'm particularly thinking about under the expansionist Byzantine Empire, say in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries after Christ, and obviously with the Ottomans, um, the 15th and 16th centuries. So there's that sort of sense that what Turkey has now become, which is kind of back down on Anatolia, Asia Minor, on what is modern Turkey, actually echoes right out into all the surrounding areas, which is to the north, beyond the Black Sea, Crimea and southern Russia, to the northeast, the Caucasus, um, Georgia and Armenia, to the east, Iran, to the south, Iraq, Syria and the Arabian countries. And then, of course, to the west and the southwest, the islands of the Aegean, the Greek islands of the Aegean, and then northwest, the Balkans, um, Bulgaria, um, Greece, um, parts of Romania. So you suddenly get this kind of sense that whatever this country is, and of course it has its own culture too, but it's drawing so naturally in from all those surrounding areas, which it once, if it didn't actually occupy, it had very strong commercial and uh, social links with. So you suddenly get that sense that Turkey, despite the fact that you get this kind of stripped down idea of it being Turkey, full of Turkish people, is actually something so much more complicated than that. Um, and it's probably worth saying a little bit about that from recent late Ottoman history, because what I think happened was when the Ottoman Empire began to go into retreat, into, into decline, began to contract from its widest possible base, it basically began to withdraw from all the areas that I've described. Um, and the Islamicized populations in all those areas, because they found themselves under pressure from the newly um, nationalized, zealous countries around the edge, for example, uh, independent Greece, um, modern Russia, suddenly found themselves retreating into what is now Turkey, Anatolia. So you've got this great kind of sense of melting pot that if you ask modern Turks even now um, to look back a couple of generations, they can tell us, uh, they can tell you that their forebears, perhaps their grandparents, their great grandparents, came from such interesting, exotic and different backgrounds from right across, as I say, that huge kind of area um, around the edges of what is now modern Turkey. So I hope that helps give a kind of sense of why for me, as a young man, initially, when I first went to Turkey as a um, teacher in 1984, I gradually got this kind of sense that there was an enormous amount to begin to understand about this country that wasn't properly appreciated. Um, in terms of one's general um, uh, headline understanding of Turkey. And in fact, it's such an interesting and enormous subject that it seems to me that it's taken the whole of my working life to begin to come to grips with it. And I suppose that's why I've focused so much of my travel and so much of my writing very specifically 
on that country because I wanted, rather than to kind of spread wide and to go to any number of places across the globe, I found myself interested in the idea of digging deep into this one, well, it isn't one culture, but into this one uh, national unit, Turkey, to get a greater sense of just how varied and interesting and fascinating culturally, historically, linguistically, ethnically, uh, culinarily, and I could continue. Well, that's what's really stood out for me in reading your book as well. Like the more, the deeper I got into the the subject, just the more fascinating it becomes. Like you've described it as um, the seam between cultural worlds, and it seems like it, it is. It's served that uh, role in ancient times as well. Like I was astonished by the sheer number of peoples whose stories played out there, from uh, what the Arzawans, the Hittites, the Phrygians of with, of King Midas fame, in addition to the Persians and Alexander. Do you think this is a function of the geography? It's a very good question. If you look at the, uh, the, 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 the map of ancient Turkey, and the, uh, which is, as I say, Anatolia, and the way that it divided up, you suddenly get this kind of sense that there were these endless provinces, counties, kingdoms, call them what you will, with all these amazing names, Lycia, Phrygia, Mysia, Bithynia, Paphlagonia, Cappadocia, Cilicia, and on and on and on. And what is wonderful is that clearly back in ancient times, there was a very clear sense that each of these peoples had its own distinctive culture and identity. And the ancient writers talk about these um, different countries, not in any great detail, but with enough of a sense to give us a sense that they all had their differences. They all had their slightly different languages, although most of them are lost already. And I'm not sure what that is a product of, except this, that it's quite clear to me that Turkey, compared to some of the surrounding lands which were interested in it, so we're talking about ancient Greece or ancient Persia, was so much more fertile and able to carry much larger populations than those two, albeit powerful countries. And that seems to me to answer the question as to why you do have all these interesting, established, separate kingdom communities from, say, 800 BC, perhaps, right through to the homogenization that began initially under the Greeks of Alexander, you might say, and then latterly with the Romans from, say, 150 BC onwards. And at that stage, you start to see all those ancient cultures beginning to be assimilated and absorbed into the modern imperial state, which begins, I guess, with the Greeks, then with the Romans, then with the Byzantines, who are effectively the Christian Romans, then with the Ottomans, who are uh, Islamic Turks. Um, and so that whole process of extraordinary change, not only culturally, but uh, ethnically to a degree, and in terms of religion, starts to, starts to kick in. But I've always found myself fascinated by that notion that even now, um, lots of the areas in, in, in modern Turkey are still known as by their ancient classical names. So Lycia, ancient Lycia, and those people go back in the Hittite annals to, say, 1200 BC. The area is still commonly known as Lycia. And the same is true of Caria, the area next to it. And it's true of lots of the areas that that still has a currency, which is extraordinary. Do the people who live there now relate at all to those ancient cultures? Yeah, 
I think that particularly in some areas, there is a kind of sense of pride, especially in Lickier, I think. And when you read the 19th century accounts of the travellers, the British antiquarian travellers, for example, like Charles Fellows, you get a sense of them that there is this strong sense of a very ancient identity, people associating themselves with these ancient ideas of um, mini nationhood, despite the fact that they are Islamicized and they speak a different language and they probably come from a different rootstock in terms of the number of peoples who have um, moved through these lands. And yet there is still this kind of strong association with areas. And I guess it's to do with also with a pride in the great ancient sites of those particular areas, because of course, that's kind of associated with the degree to which one area over another can fancy its chances touristically in terms of what the sites are. So you will get a sense, I think, in the area around Ephesus, which is ancient Ionia, that people still associate with the idea of Ionia, at least to the degree of using it in their marketing copy and trading on that idea of an ancient peoples. So then you mentioned the um, the Romans come along and start to unify this larger empire, but then, as we know, it gradually shrinks down to to what was left of the Byzantine Empire in the east, and they they were there for what two thousand years or something like this. Well, it it depends where you start counting and stop counting. I mean, it's probably fair to say that the Romans begin to uh, take over from the Greeks at at several decisive battles in 180 BC. And there's a continuum which is Roman right through um, until 330 BC when it continues as Roman, but under the first Christianized emperor, who is, of course, um, Constantine. And then, of course, we can we can actually say that the Byzantine emperor continues empire forgive me continues until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So I would say 1450 years plus another 180 takes us to what 1700 mm. years or thereabouts. So it's an extraordinarily long span of time. And what is fascinating is that even after that, um, up until modern times, Turks were describing uh, their Christian Greek minorities, i.e. the descendants of the Byzantines, as Rum, which is the Turkish name for Roman. So the idea of these people still being Roman, living in Constantinople, far, far, far away from Rome, was an amazing, amazing echo of empire, which, as I say, uh, continued um, up up actually until until the mid-1950s and 60s, when, when the last substantial populations of of Greek-speaking Orthodox Christians left Istanbul because of the pogroms, and you now only have a couple of thousand left. But even they would regard themselves as, and would be described as, Rum or Roman by their Turkish um, neighbours. Are there any other echoes of Byzantium in the larger culture, in Turkish culture today? Like, It's a good question. Um, it's often... A, 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 quite a fraught question as well, because um, there's a degree to which it seems to me that the kind of increasingly Islamicized Turkish state prefers to turn its back on the notion that the culture could be based in any substantial way on 
Byzantine culture. But certainly it's true, I think, of the food, or at least strands within the cooking, that that is profoundly Byzantine. And of course, it's also true of the architecture. So all these huge Ottoman mosques, which have been built and which you know, may, may have heard of being built, great replica of Ottoman mosques being built all, all across the country. Of course, the dome of the Ottoman mosque is lifted directly from the late domed Basilican, uh, Byzantine basilicas, such as particularly Hagia Sophia in, in Istanbul. So there's a sense that it's carried through in the architecture and in the cuisine. Other than that, it's kind of certainly lost in the language because the, um, the, the adoption of Turkish from, say, the 12th century AD onwards was so complete that there, is, that there are very few people, there's no real linguistic echoes of Byzantinism. Um, so I would say apart from that, probably not. Um, and I think it's, it's also the case that, that's, that that process of its disappearance has probably been accelerated, as I say, because of the politics, because of the fact that the, that the Turkish state wants to privilege and prioritize the restoration, for example, of Islamic Ottoman buildings over, for example, um, Christian Byzantine church buildings, which is another reason, of course, why, um, why um, President Erdogan was so keen to turn um, Hagia Sophia, uh, most recently a, a um, museum, back into a mosque, um, which it had been um, up to the end of the Ottoman Empire, and which was turned into, muse into, a, into a museum by Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the great founding modernizer in 1934. So yes, there is a sort of sense that Byzantinism is still in play, but to a degree it's tokenistic and it's only in particular places. So give me, give me a couple of examples of the cuisine, Byzantine echoes in the cuisine. I know nothing about that. Yeah, um, uh, something to do with the ornateness of it. I mean, it seems to me that there are two things going on. If you think about Turkish cuisine, you either think of kebabs, and guzzleme, which is a kind of basic um, pancake style, easy to make um, fast food, and indeed iran, which is a sort of sour yogurt. And those, it seems to me, are from the nomadic Turkish tradition, whereas the rest of the cookery, which is far more complex, seems to have its origins in kind of um, Byzantine court cuisine, using lots of lots of vegetables in interesting and complicated ways. Um, uh, what they do, for example, with um, aubergines and um, courgettes and peppers, that all probably has its origins more in Byzantine cooking than in Turkish nomadic cooking, which of course was necessarily quite simple and quite stripped down because it was the cooking of nomadic people on the um, on the road, you know, um, uh, itinerant. Um, so yes, I would say that a lot of the more interesting cooking that you'll come across, including the whole meze culture, which is about small tapas style um, uh, dips and um, small plates of food um, before the main course, um, uh, arguably has its origins in Byzantine cooking. That's fascinating. I had no idea. Really mm -hmm. interesting. 
But so one one period that did leave a profound influence on the modern country is, as you said, the Ottoman Empire. And I lived in in Malta for about six years. And the Ottoman Empire, uh, the the image of it there is is uh, you know the enemy from across the seas, the Great Siege of Malta, all that stuff. Yeah. But what what never seems to come across is this um, this profound period of tolerance, yeah. of cultural tolerance and religious tolerance. One thing, a, a quote that stood out for me from a Fez of the Heart. You mentioned uh, when Mahmoud II introduced the Fez, this this venerable piece of headgear in the 1820s. He said, henceforth, I recognize Muslims only in the mosque, Christians only in the church, Jews only in the synagogue. Outside those places of worship, I desire every individual to enjoy the same political rights and my fatherly protection. So the Fez symbolized the benign cosmopolitanism in a sense, an empire that didn't disguise its um, racial makeup or try to homogenize everybody. It's a very different image than, than what I would have heard, you know, living across the seas in Malta. Well, I mean, I think that 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 must have given you an amazing perspective, um, in terms of in terms of, in terms of what you're talking about. And of course, we to a degree in Britain had the same feel too, not because we were so directly threatened or influenced um, historically by the Ottomans, but you know, um, all the pubs in Britain known as kind of the Turk's Head, mm-hmm. um, and all the dogs known in up until the 19th century as Sultan were ways of um, insulting, I guess, abusing the. Uh, threat that was so very real um, and felt and you you see it in Shakespeare's plays in the poetry of the uh, the metaphysicals you see this endless kind of sense that that um, the Ottoman Turks were the were regarded as the, as the great danger understandably because they reached as far as um, Vienna in the 1600s and were often po- poised to overrun Europe so um, there is a sense that um, they were a threat, and indeed they were, because the, the the one thing to say before we talk about tolerance is that there is no question that the Turks were always a martial people, and they were always interested in the notion of expanding the emperor and conquering the unholy infidel lands. So that was what drove these endless campaigns, particularly into the West, particularly into Europe, from, say, the 13, 1400s onwards, right through to the fall of the Ottomans. But but would you say that was a product of the times? I mean, the, the Christians were were doing so, something sort of similar with. Well, they were doing something sort of similar. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, but it, I suppose this is just a kind of a caveat before we then talk about the amazing tolerance that you've already referenced. Um, what was really fascinating about um, the Ottoman outlook on how a culture, how a society might work, was the sense, as you say that when the Ottoman Turks overran Anatolia from, well, when the Turks overran Anatolia, latterly, uh, primarily a dynasty called the Seljuks, latterly the Ottomans, um, then, of course, there were, there were huge, largely Christian populations which they had to assimilate. Some of these um, made the choice to convert to Islam, but large numbers retained their kind of identity as as minorities. And the question then for the Ottoman authorities was how were they going to deal with this? To what degree would they encourage these people to Islamicize and become Turkish? And to what degree were they prepared to tolerate them? And it seems that it was to a considerable degree. And this system was set up of self-governing millets, which is basically nationalities or nations within the Ottoman 
um, within the Ottoman state. And each of these, and each different religious peoples tended to have one. So there was a uh, there was a there was a Jewish millet, there was an Armenian millet, there was a Greek Orthodox millet, and there were any number of other ones too. And each of these were able to elect their own leaders. They had their own religious leaders. They had their own courts, so that they were able to um, to, to try their own peoples. They had a great deal of autonomy within the overall system. What was required of them was to pay obeisance to the um, Ottoman authorities. And there were various restrictions in terms, for example, of the fact that um, uh, a, a lot of their churches were either closed down or in the event they were allowed, they were allowed to remain open, uh, were no longer allowed to have um, clanging bells because that was deemed to be offensive to um, uh, and to be competitive with the, with the minaret and the call to prayer, but just uh, less noisy wooden clappers so that the message could get out there, albeit more locally, to bring in the people. So there were these various things going on, and there were various restrictions in terms of what one was requ required to, to wear, which would mark you out, for example, as a Christian of a particular faith or a particular de denomination. Um, but broadly speaking, the system seems to have worked very harmoniously, and indeed to the advantage, to the benefit of a lot of these minority populations, not least because they were allowed to get on with the business of business, commerce, making money, while the Turkish majority tended to be composed of less well-educated agricultural farming peoples whose roles were twofold, A, to provide food for the empire, and B, to serve as soldiery as and when the empire went to war. The, um, the Christian minorities, not being men of the true faith, were not allowed to fight because fight was, of course, a holy calling, um, which I suspect suited quite a lot of them very, very well. All in all, the overall feel was that um, it was, given what was happening in Britain at the same time, where heretics and outsiders were being uh, burnt at the stake, um, and the same in a lot of northern Ger uh, in, in Germany as well. Um, it's remarkable that for so long, Ottoman Turkey was able to maintain this incredibly harmonious balance between all these people um, working together and understanding themselves broadly as Ottomans, primarily as Ottomans, even though under that they were either Turkish Ottoman or Greek Ottoman or Armenian Ottoman and so on. I got the sense that they they also welcomed other peoples who were willing to assimilate and become part of their culture. Like, I don't remember where I read it, but wasn't it true that that during the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, I think during the Reconquista, they welcomed these populations, and and the response was basically like, why the hell are they kicking these people out? They're they're talented, highly educated, productive people. I think that um, the uh, the Ottoman sultans from a very early stage had a very keen understanding of the value of attracting educated, cultured peoples, regardless of their, um, their belief systems. Um, and this was obviously to their great advantage because those populations became incredibly rich, very, very successful, and put huge amounts of money into the Ottoman uh, exchequer. So it made it absolute sense. And at a time when other cultures were increasingly trying to um, 
um, homogenize and make sure that everybody worshipped the same gods and spoke the same language. Um, so yes, you're entirely right. Um, famously, the expelled um, uh, Jews under Ferdinand and Isabella found refuge in, um, in Turkey, particularly in Constantinople. And what was the state of the arts and sciences at that time during, during the, the sort of the peak of the Ottoman era? It's a good question. Um, there is a sort of sense that there was a very flourishing culture um, and we talk, for example, about the Tulip Age when there was a huge interest in uh, calligraphy, for example, in um, miniature uh, portraiture, for example. Um, the degree to which that extended, though, into fields like music, at least beyond, say, the sort of the statutory court music, is kind of hard to say because. I don't feel I'm necessarily particularly well qualified to talk about this, but the instinct I have is that actually I'm not sure that Ottoman culture was particularly, it had to learn an enthusiasm for it and an interest in all that. I suppose because going back to Ottoman, the Ottoman roots, it was a simple nomadic lifestyle. And of course, in their move, in the Turkish move, we haven't really talked about the whole kind of Turkish migration. And it's briefly worth saying that the Turks actually begin in what we might now describe as Western China. And their migration west through Central Asia into Persia and then into Anatolia takes place from about 600 AD through to 1000 AD. And it's probably driven by competition for land or aggression from. Um, various Chinese um, imperial uh, military people. But whatever, it's that that causes these Turkic tribes to end up on the um, eastern borders of Anatolia and then to move in and to take over. And of course, in that journey, they've absorbed much of the cultures that they've moved through. And I think that's particularly true of um, the great kind of Islamic cultures uh, latterly um, in Central Asia, but particularly of Persia too. So there is this kind of sense that Ottoman culture and latterly Turkish culture is coloured by its um, contact, by its engagement with um, Persia in the kind of, what should we say, 10th, 11th centuries late on. Um, um, and that, I suppose, to a degree is reflected in mainstream Ottoman and latterly Turkish culture too. So were those early Turks related to the Uyghur peoples and, and other? Well, exactly. I mean, the Uyghurs are a, uh, are a Turkic people, and this is where it gets incredibly complicated. There is this distinction between Turkic, which covers all the tribes that speak those Turkish languages who are spread even now from yeah, the Uyghur areas in Xinjiang, right through all the Central Asian republics, into parts of northern uh, Iran, so Azerbaijan, for example, and then through into modern Turkey, where there is still a link right across. So if a modern Turk were to leave Istanbul now, and this is a journey I've always wanted to accompany a modern Turk on, and to travel right through Central Asia to Xinjiang, I would love to hear them pick up those echoes of the language, which are very, very strong the whole way through. You look at just the names of all the places, and it's clearly very, very strongly influenced 
Uh, modern Turkish, while it's traveled a long way from its roots, is still clearly closely connected to all the languages all the way through Central Asia. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, um, it is fascinating to me that because of this uh, migration, this mass migration, which is very poorly understood, but which I've described and which has the some Turkish tribes, some Turkic tribes, driven out of their homelands in Western China, um, the Altai Mountains, that area, and ending up eventually in modern Turkey. That journey is extraordinary. And one of the great survivors on that journey is the language. So um, the fact that Turkish sits in an area surrounded by languages now to which it has absolutely no link at all. I'm thinking of Greek. I'm thinking of Arabic, for example. I'm thinking of um, some of the languages like Romanian. It's extraordinary. It's a, it's a language all on its own with completely different rules, which have somehow survived not that much change from its origins in um, right back in Western China. I think, too, that people generally tend to lump Turkey in with the Islamic world without realizing that this linguistic connection to Central Asia and beyond, and that these are very different um, cultural origins. Turkish Islam, unlike Arabian Islam, is very, very different, not, not least in the strength of those kind of heterodox, unconventional, particularly Sufi strains which run through it. And there is a large minority in Turkey called the Alevis, who are connected in a complicated way to, for example, the Alawites in um, northern Syria, but who are effectively quite closely linked to Iranian Shia tenets of belief and culture, but also intermixed with a strong dose of what we might call Anatolian folklore and shamanism. And those people constitute probably 25% of Turkey's uh, Muslim, and I'm using that in inverted commas, Muslim um, population. So they're very, very important. They are distinctive, and they're often regarded pejoratively by mainstream Sunni Turkish Muslims as Persians, because the sense is that that, that, that link between their take on religion and Iranian Shia is, Shiaism, Shiism is very, very close. So this is another Central Asian link, the the drift of different religious traditions and and belief systems that then melded with Islam? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Whereas, you know, you you look to the South and the way that um, Islam is composed in um, uh, countries like Iraq uh, and obviously the Gulf, there is a much stronger, much purer line of descent back from, um, you know, Muhammad and the Islamic um, and the Islamic tradition that grew out of grew out of the heartlands of Islam. Turkey comes from way out east and has travelled through all kinds of really interesting um, cultures and religious beliefs. I mean, Zoroastrianism, of course, that was um, that was kind of also absorbed into Turkish Islam along the way as Turks moved through Persia you know, in the, the 10th and 11th century. So you get this extraordinary, very, very complicated mix. And I think that what you get out of that is that sense that Turkish Islam tends to be very, very tolerant. I think what's happening now is that because of influence 
uh, particularly financial influence from the Gulf and from Saudi Arabia, that is beginning to change in terms of the way that a lot of Sunni Turks begin to understand themselves. And that sense of a more complicated and distinctive Sufi-inspired Islam is beginning to is beginning to come under pressure from a much more hardline manifestation of Islam. That's really interesting as well. I think we'll we'll end up getting there in a roundabout way by sort of going through the attempts to to modernize and and westernize Turkey after the fall of the Ottoman Empire and and the backlash against that. I found that really fascinating in your in your stories as well. So it's the great man theory of history comes in for a lot of flack, but it's difficult to imagine the nation of today without Ataturk. Yeah, he does come in for a lot of flack. Um, and he's he is such a fascinating figure. I mean, you know, talking about Turkey without him is like talking about Christianity without without Jesus. It's it's he's utterly at the heart of most people's conception of what Turkey, modern Turkey, is all about. And I completely get that because it seems to seems to me to be that it was a whole kind of um, series of circumstances and situations which um, allowed him to rise to the to the position of power and influence that he did. And it's probably just saying for those of your listeners who don't know much about him, he was born in the 1880s. He was actually born in Salonika in Thessaloniki, which was by that stage right on the western um, fringes of what was left of the rapidly shrinking Ottoman Empire. His house is still there, right? The, the house he was born in. The house is still there, yeah. I, I walked past it about, about three weeks ago. I was, I was surprised. I didn't know. Um, and it's, very, very, it's a very important outpost for um, Turks in that part of the world. And Thessaloniki was always a really fascinating place, again, with lots of interesting um, minorities and known as a place of new ideas, revolutionary ideas, um, and it seems to have been all that which inspired this young man, obviously very bright, went on to become a soldier, as did most Ottomans of any kind of standing at all, um, and inspired in him ideas of extreme modernism. He looked towards Europe. He looked towards Western Europe and ideas coming out of France, Italy, and to a degree Britain for his inspiration as he began to um, as he began to become a fairly high-ranking and um, influential army officer. And of course, it was quite by chance that he was the man who played such an important role in the defence at Gallipoli in 1915, when the British and the British Imperial forces, including the Anzacs, and I guess the Canadians, um, I'm assuming, were there, although I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly the French were there, the Brits were there, the Australians and the New Zealanders were there. There was a big... Indian contingent. Um, and it was an attempt, obviously, by taking the uh, Dardanelles, by taking that peninsula to force an entry passage through to Constantinople and therefore knock the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, out of the Great War at the beginning of it, and also open up the route to Russia, who were, of course, allies of Britain and France uh, in that war. Um, and it was Mustafa Kemal who had a, a, a very important and played a very important role in marshalling those heroic defences to actually keep the uh, to keep the Allied forces at bay, and his career effectively is founded primarily on that. That puts him in a position of some influence later in the war, particularly in nineteen nineteen, 
when the Ottomans, along with the Germans, have um, capitulated and the great powers, namely Britain, Greece, France and Italy, are proposing to carve up the Ottoman Empire into tiny, tiny bits, largely to their own advantage, but also with national homes for um, subject peoples of the Ottomans, like the Armenians particularly, and the Kurds, and leaving very, very little for the Sunni, Turkish-speaking uh, majority. So, so what was the geographical extent of the Ottoman Empire by that point? By that point, it was right, right down. So what is left by the Ottomans' defeat in 1918 is a small amount of, of northeast Greece, so Thrace, um, a few outlying Aegean islands, um, and quite a lot of land to the south of modern Turkey. That's to say the Kurdish areas of Iraq, so Erbil and Mosul, the oil fields, um, and also quite a lot of the um, the Arabian uh, the Arabian Gulf and the Arabian Peninsula, sort of pre-oil. So the interests, as far as the um, great powers are concerned, is Britain wants Mosul and Erbil because they found oil there. The Greeks want the area around um, Smyrna, Izmir, because it's the great breadbasket, and also it's opposite. It's opposite the Greek mainland, so it's a natural eastern extension of, of, of what they perceive to be the greater Greece. The French want the area around Silesia, which is the great, the great cotton fields, and the Italians want the area which is kind of now around Bodrum and along that coast, largely, I think, because there was such a strong Roman echo of Roman cities there, and it's also an important kind of strategic area in their judgment. And it's Mustafa Kemal who leads the resistance movement against that whole kind of process of the fracturing of the Ottoman Empire into tiny bits. And he manages to drive out, the uh, in, in the course of what the Turks know as the independence war, the great independence war between 1919 and 1922, he manages, he and his forces manage spectacularly to drive out the invader, the invader armies, particularly the Greeks, who uh, have landed in 1919 with uh, modern well-equipped armies and um, make it clear that their aim is to take a larger, much larger swathe of Western Turkey so as to uh, fulfil their dream of a kind of, of a greater Greece um, encompassing both sides of the Aegean. But it's Ataturk who uh, drives them out, drives them back to Smyrna and anybody who knows their history at all will know that Smyrna in September 1922 uh, the modern Turkish city of Izmir is where there is great burnings and great slaughter. And it's at that moment that the old Ottoman dream of Turkey dies and the idea of a modern, specifically Turkish republic begins to uh, emerge. He, he comes along, he, he preserves the heartland of the nation, carves out a new country by pushing out these uh, these invaders, but then he brings them back in the form of, of their culture. He sets out to modernize the nation on, on Western standards against the will of many of the people that he was governing. Yeah, this is the most extraordinary paradox, I suppose, in the whole in the whole story, not only of Mustafa Kemal Atta, but also of the, uh, the character of the modern Turkish nation state. Absolutely on its own terms, absolutely um, insisting on um, victory on the battlefield, but at the same time, 
very keen to ape so many of the uh, so many of the institutions and the ideas and the values of those Western states. So Mustafa Kemal's uh, conviction is that everything about the late Ottomans was holding back the empire from progress because there was this resistance, if you like, I suppose, to new ideas, to new inventions. There was this this sense that change was fundamentally dangerous, divisive, and to be avoided. And Ataturk's idea is that we get rid of all that, we start anew, and we absolutely embrace change a quite enormous degree. And I think what's fascinating about him was that he had acquired so much political capital by what he'd achieved on the battlefield, firstly at Gallipoli, but secondly in the great independence war between 1919 and 1922, that he knew, I think, that he had an extraordinary opportunity to go much further than any other political leader, that he could take his people with them simply because of the depth of the love and the admiration that they felt for him on account of what had done on the battlefield. And I think that is really interesting to compare Turkey at that period with, for example, um, Afghanistan under King Amanullah, who tried something equally outlandish, you know, the adoption of kind of Western Edwardian dress. But, you know, um, he wasn't loved like Astor was loved, and he simply couldn't. Um, he simply couldn't establish the roots of social and cultural revolution in Afghanistan to the same in, in the same way that Ataturk at least partially was able to do in Turkey. So you you symbolized his drive to transform the country through the Fez and his great dislike he took of the traditional headgear, which he saw as um, symptomatic of a stubborn adherence to obsolete or reactionary values in a sense. So he passes this um, hat law with with an it's almost like there's a notion that by changing the hats of the people, you could reinvent them and change their minds in a sense. Yeah. It seems very simplistic, doesn't it? Well, no, not at all. Like it, this is a fundamental belief at the heart of liberalism, I think, this Rousseauian blank slate. So we kind of saw how that went wrong in recent years in in Iraq and Libya. The idea that if you just, you know, knock out the dictator, everyone will embrace Western liberal democracy. Indeed. And it didn't yes. happen because there were deeper, deeper cultural forces at play. But so it's it's like the sense that you knock off this hat and these traditional values, and then the new values will sweep in and replace them. And you know he, he met great resistance. So though people, I, I couldn't believe that people were actually hung for defying the the hat ban. It's absolutely crazy. Yes, and I come back to that actually in in the last book too. I mean, I think w- what's really interesting is the notion that what Ataturk was was attempting in the early 1920s bears comparison, I think, with what the Bolsheviks were trying to do um, from a few years earlier in Russia. Um, not to the same degree, but yes, I mean, this was absolutely an imposition of radical ideas on a largely unwilling people, which is why you get situations whereby um, anybody who, not anybody, but there are a few examples of people who very publicly went out of their way to decry the new hats in support of the old feds were hanged for doing so. This was to make an example um, of everybody else. So it's really, really interesting, um, that whole kind of process of trying to jump start, process of change, um, quite as brutally as it was jump started. And of course, that whole kind of extreme, radical Western program 
continues right through from the 20s up until, I'm guessing, and this is arguable, the 1990s, when, or perhaps even earlier, perhaps the 1960s, perhaps it's 1950, when Adnan Menderes comes into power, and we'll get on to him in a minute, I dare say. So what, uh, what parts did he succeed at, would you say, Ataturk? What was the, the successful part of his legacy, the positive side? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the, the first thing I would say is that actually, I think the whole thing about clothes, um, while it's very important symbolically, is something that he has managed to, um, he has managed to kind of undercut. People dress pretty much as they like in Turkey now, and there is no, there is no kind of governing code with, with everything that that stands for. Um, I think that for a large swathe of the population, those who embraced it, the um, effect has been brilliant. I mean, it seems to me that modern Turks are very modern in terms of their willingness to embrace foreign languages, their willingness to embrace new ideas, literatures, cultures. But by the same token, those who always felt resentful of the new uh, vision that was being foisted upon them, or at least their descendants, are still resentful of those changes, and they are the people. They are the peoples who find their heroes in such modern populist politicians as Menderes and today's President Erdogan. So I would say he succeeded in managing to transform not quite half the population, and they tend to be the urban, educated, professional classes who have absolutely bought into the Ataturk revolution, leaving behind, and I know I'm, I'm generalizing here, leaving behind a lot of the rural, village, less educated populations who still, to a degree at least, feel um, like they have lost, that they and their forebears lost so much with the end of the Ottoman Empire. And that hasn't changed with the generations, like younger, younger rural dwellers, for example, don't well, you would, you would assume with every generation that that change would kind of gather pace. But I think that while it has with those who have bought into it, those who haven't have actually dug in ever more deeply, which is why, as I keep saying, it seems to me that's why that's why Erdogan finds his support, it seems to me. It's, 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 it's with those who regard the followers of Ataturk as godless. Um, and extremely radical and destroys of everything that their forebears held dear. It's really interesting what a complicated relationship people have with Ataturk. How you, you wrote about how multiple distinct incarnations of the man seem to exist in the Turkish mind. So on, on the one hand, he's this, this yeah. uh, the national father, he's a war hero, the great educator, the champion yeah. of, of women even, and, and Panama hats. But on the other hand, his attacks on religion and traditional values. It's, it's like he lives in this com compartmentalized state in people's minds. I think so. I mean, he's, he is a, an enormously divisive figure. And what is interesting is that that was not recognized. That was not admitted to up until the last few decades. So the idea that you could describe him as being divisive, which is to say there were people who didn't like him, was something that you simply couldn't say. Um, up until up until quite recently, it's only now that we recognise that there are people who feel that there are huge numbers of people who 
while they admire aspects of him, and, and again, it comes back to the whole kind of thing of being a military hero, because military heroes play so well with Turks, other as aspects of him, particularly his kind of secular radicalism, uh, remain um, deeply, deeply at odds with the aspirations of lots of today's traditional Turks, yeah. And ironically enough, the the program of Westernization that he was pushing forward contained the seeds of its own divisions. In pushing forth democracy and and uh, you know the vote for everyone, it ended up ushering in a situation where people in the countryside voted for the traditional Islamic values that he had tried to remove, and and gradually voted back in uh, and reversed a lot of what uh, a lot of what he was trying to stand for. This is the problem with democracy, of course, isn't isn't it? You know, it actually is the most effective way of reflecting the overall will of the people. And I don't think that the Kemalists, as Ataturk's followers, remain uh, continue to be known, actually properly appreciated when they signed off on moving from a single party state to um, a democratically um, elected multi-party system. They didn't actually recognise, because nobody had ever asked the people before what they really wanted. And what it appears they really wanted was something not entirely akin to um, what Ataturk and his followers had always ha had on offer. So, of course, yeah, I mean, with the adoption of democracy in 1946 and a democratic system, that's when the problem starts. That's when it becomes really, really complicated, because suddenly the, the, the overall range of opinions and political positions with all the kind of fraught difficulties that that entails are out in the open and, and are out in play. I mean, it's interesting that over the Ataturk years, i.e. from 1923 through till 1946, there was barely a political assassination. It was the most stable because nobody was in a position to contest what the ruling party wanted. And um, it was a very, very stable time, but it wasn't a happy time, and it certainly didn't reflect the will of the people. It's not as though no one, no one saw this coming. In a sense, like you, you mentioned, that. I can't remember which of the three books it was in uh, that Iran, Egypt, and Afghanistan had banned fezes or or the equivalent in their in their attempts to westernize. But you asked a British journalist who who specialized in Turkey what the chance was of a, an Islamic revolution, and he said twenty years. I think that was in the Facebook because there was a time when it felt like that. Um, I don't think it'll ever go that far. But um, now that I'm in, with a few more decades of um, perspective under my belt, but I do think what we're seeing under Erdogan is a very gradual, but nevertheless very clear move towards a more devout traditional Islamic society than Ataturk would ever have allowed. So the figure at the center of your most recent book, A Coup in Turkey, he, he represents the I guess the the period where this started to really come out into the open and he take does. charge. So maybe we should talk about him. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think he's the most fascinating figure, and he's always been eclipsed in any kind of recounting of modern Turkish history, and for reasons that I'll explain in a minute. But I think he's absolutely key to understanding how we go from a single party state with an imposed ultra-secular vision uh, deriving from Ataturk to what we have now, which is a, uh, broadly speaking, fractious, democratic, broadly democratic system, whereby the other side 
the counter-revolution is taking place. And this guy's name was Adnan Menderes. He was born in 1899 into a good farming family. Um, and he serves as a politician of the ruling party from the early 1930s through to the 1940s. And then he's at the very front of this kind of push for democracy, which um, kicks in immediately after the Second World War, so in 1946. He's very charismatic. He becomes the leader of the Democrat Party, which is the, 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 the main opposition party to the ruling party. And in 1950, it wins by a landslide. And he comes to power with a mandate from the people who he recognizes are the people who were left out by the um, secularists. That's to say, the more traditionally minded, the, the less well-educated, particularly, and the rural people, as opposed to the elites, the journalists, the academics, the teachers, um, the bureaucrats, the, the army officers, et cetera, et cetera. So you start to get that kind of sense of these two sides and the one, the one side, which was previously forgotten, is very much the constituency of Adnan Menderes and of his Democrat Party. And in the course of the decade that he's in power, between 1950 and 1960, he increasingly courts their vote, not least by doing things which in modern Turkey, at least back then, you're not supposed to do, which is to give ever greater leeway and um, expression to public Islamic belief and the role of Islam in the state, which Ataturk had absolutely banned, begins to seep in again. And it's because of that, I think, that while he's loved by the peasant classes particularly, and he's very, very good with them, he is increasingly despised by the people who he, who he doesn't appear to represent, as I say, the professional classes, the teachers, the academics, the intellectuals. And, and the army officers too. And it's the army officers who always regard themselves as the great guardians of Ataturk's vision, because of course he was the ultimate soldier and they therefore look up to him. They look up to his example and to his memory. And it's them, of course, who made the decision in 1960, ultimately that they've had enough of this Menderes character who's charismatic, who's incredibly populist, who's uh, managed to stay in power for 10 years and who's increasingly authoritarian. He is, he, he, he is moving against free speech and a free press, despite the fact that at the beginning of his 10 years, he was absolutely supportive of them, as you would imagine any party called the Democrat Party would be. So it's almost like he turns back on all his original values and beliefs. So, so pause, pause for a second there. So he, he comes from a rural background. He's a, a successful farmer and it, the people in the countryside love him. He's, he's one of them basically, right? He's uh, an example of the best that they could be in a sense. He comes to power. Uh, he, he does things like reopening mosques and religious schools. Um, he allows the call to, call to prayer to be made in Arabic again, rather than Turkish. Uh, he provides funds for pilgrims to Mecca. Uh, he, he's at ease with with the humble and uneducated people. These these things all seem like positive shifts and a gradual re reestablishment of some of that tolerance that, uh, that that we saw during Ottoman times. Meanwhile, the military is quite defensive of Ataturk's legacy. And maybe it's a maybe you could clarify um, why the military matters in a sense, like the high regard that they were held in. Yeah, of course, it's definitely worth saying something about that. I mean, in Turkish culture, it's always been the case that military officers 
enjoy an extraordinary prestige. And I think that was particularly the case from the great independence war. So because it was the military who oversaw the emergence of modern Turkey, the modern nation, by their victory between 1919 and 1922, they have a very, very special place in the life of the nation and in the regard of the nation, perhaps in a different way to say, well, where I come from, Britain, where the military has a role, and we look back to great victories, but not in the same way that Turks do. For Turks, the role of the military was absolutely what saved their country, their country from annihilation. It would have disappeared. That, I think, is why the military is so important. And that, I think, is why military officers have always held themselves to an extremely high standard. Uh, for them, it's all about serving the nation. It's all about austerity. It's all about the nation above everything else. And because Ataturk, and it's also about it's also about reform and about progress and about modern ideas. I guess that's because a lot of these young officers in the late Ottoman period and into the early Republican period, a lot of them trained overseas. They went to um, academies in Britain and Germany and America. So they were imbued with these kind of modern ideas of how a state might work. And therefore, the degree to which they, they, they were going to defend Ataturk's vision was absolute because they could see how it was all part of the country that he wanted and the country that therefore they were going to pledge themselves to defend. And so when Menderes began to undermine that, by doing the right thing democratically, I think it's fair to say, i.e. reflecting the will of the people, it was nevertheless that will of the people, sadly, became clear, was in conflict with what Ataturk wanted. And when they had to choose, the military officers chose Ataturk rather than the will of the people. And to, get, and to give a sense of just how revered he was in the beginning, like your, your book opens with a, a scene of a plane crash at Gatwick Airport. He's, his plane goes down, him and uh, what, one or two other people walk away un, unscathed, completely unscathed. And when he comes back to Turkey, just masses of crowds everywhere, this remarkable scene of people sacrificing animals. All sorts of animals from the countryside, sacrificing them to, to Allah to, to, to thank them for the survival of this man. Paint that picture for us. Yeah, I will. I mean, for me, this is how I start the book, um, because it seems to me to be absolutely key. It happens quite late in the Menderes decade. It's February 1959, and it's a government delegation, a Turkish government delegation flying into London to sign an agreement on the independence of Cyprus. And the plane goes down in fog. and it so happens that Menderes is sitting in the right part of the plane. He walks out with a couple of others, whereas the majority of the, the majority of the rest are either killed outright or later on. And therefore, while it's a national tragedy, because there's a lot of very high-ranking people on board this flight, um, the Menderes constituency back in Turkey, I suppose understandably, views it as a miracle. Not only that, specifically as a miracle, actually actually as an actual miracle, which is to say they believe the divine hand of Allah is evident in the survival of Menderes in this crash. And this plays in the spring of 1959 to an extraordinary degree. And when he comes back to um, Turkey a couple of weeks after the crash, bruised, but no more than bruised, the crowds that gather at Ankara Station to meet him have with them, as you say, um, Ryan, not only oxen and goats and sheep, 
but um, camels as well. And there is this extraordinary slaughter, giving thanks for the uh, deliverance of their great Islamic hero, Adnan Menderes. And I think that's the moment, although it goes unspoken, when the army finally decides that they have to do something about this man because they need to prove that he is that, that, that his survival was entirely a matter of chance rather than anything to do with, anything to do with divine favor. And I wonder what, whether that's the reason, that's the prime reason why, what is it, um, 16 months later, the coup that overthrows Menderes actually takes place. That's in, that's in May, late May 1960. To back up a couple of years from that, his social policies were quite popular among rural people, but his economic policies don't seem to have been a success. It seems like the the country is plunged into deeper and deeper turmoil. And as this happens, he he went from being a leader who spoke freely to journalists and were quite supportive of them to locking them up. So where so where did things go wrong? Well, I think I think what went wrong was with his own personality. I mean, I think the problem is that. Uh, if you haven't got any practical experience of the hurly-burly of day-to-day democratic life in Parliament, then if you're if you haven't got a thick enough skin and if you're not suited to it, it's very very hard to uh, live with it. And I just think Menderes discovered that he was quite a fragile individual. He had charisma. He loved a big adoring crowd, but he hated compromise. He hated criticism. He hated anybody disagreeing with what he was saying. So he sort of naturally reverted to a sort of strongman type, which actually sort of has extraordinary parallels with today and um, with Mr. N- Mr. Menderes too, who is also, it seems, rather thin-skinned and cannot abide um, criticism, particularly press criticism too. So I think that Menderes simply discovered the failings in his own personality that he couldn't cope with in terms of what it takes to be a hard-skinned democratic politician. And so he began to pursue a much more authoritarian, intolerant series of policies, which was another reason why the um, army took again him. And of course, you've mentioned the economy. Um, he wasn't a natural economist. Again, the parallels with, with now, the only real economic plan that he had was to embark on a huge series of expensive infrastructures funded by foreign money, which in those days meant turning backward rural Turkey into uh, something rather more modern and progressive with the building of ports and refineries and dams and running electric and water to the villages, healthcare, all of that, um, which is another reason why why the people, why the village people loved him so, because he'd done so much for them, and why those who weren't such immediate beneficiaries of all that largesse, simply saw um, inflation go out of control, simply saw their state salaries begin to shrink and had very little to um, thank Menderes for. That really stood out for me as well. You mentioned um, the parallels from that time period to today. You talked about social divisions, economic ills, the building sprees, brawls in the National Assembly as well. The leaders talk of the national will, even the political jokes overlapped. That's that's really incredible. Exactly. And and, and underpinning all of that is the the point that Erdogan repeatedly makes, citing Menderes as his inspiration, as his model. And they are very, very similar. They're both charismatic. They're both instinctively conservative. They're both 
desperate for the love of the crowd. I mean, they both do rallies really, really well, and they both don't like criticism. Uh, and they both pursue this extraordinary infrastructure, you know, providing jobs for their for, for the people um, as a way of kind of driving as a way of driving the economy. But it's pretty unsubtle, and, and eventually, it's it stops working, and it stopped working with Mender as much as it seems to be stopped working for Erdogan now. There simply ain't any more money for any more of the projects that that he wants to carry through. Erdogan's. Uh period also involved a coup, but it seems like he learned some of the lessons of, of Menderes in, in the sense of not being removed. The uh, comparison of the two coups is so fascinating. Of course, the basic difference is that while uh, the one against Erdogan failed spectacularly, the one against Menderes succeeded spectacularly. I mean, they were different worlds. Um, Turkey in 1960 and Turkey in 2016 were very different worlds, not least, I think, because of the role of social media. Um, there was almost no media in 1960, and it was a case for the army in the middle of the night of simply sort of capturing the um, railway station, the airport, the presidential palace, the parliament building, the post office, and one or two other key uh, points. And that was it. Um, there weren't many telephones. So it wasn't as if the people could marshal resistance to what was going on, not least because they didn't know it was going on until they woke up in the morning to discover that the whole thing was done. Whereas in 2016, it began for all sorts of reasons that we're still to try and fathom. It began at eight o'clock at night on a Friday evening in July, when all the people were on the streets and they knew exactly what was going on instantly because of the power of social media. And um, there were, and Erdogan, because he is a popular man, you know, no question, was able to marshal huge crowds to in his support, which effectively killed the pretty quickly killed the attempted coup stone dead do you think that could have happened with menderes if if he had been able to get the word out fast enough or they i, I don't think there was any way in those days of getting the word out fast enough most of those villages still didn't have t- uh, telephones there was very little way of contacting people um and i think because the clampdown was so heavy it, it simply seems to be the case that there was this great cowed population who were very resentful at the fact that their democratically elected leader had been toppled, but there was nothing they could do about it. That said, what they have eventually done about it, it seems to me, is express that anger, that resentment through a whole series of elections to make sure that the party deemed to be behind, deemed to be supportive of the coup, was increasingly marginalised. And the sort of parties that reflect Menderes's Democrat Party, including Erdogan's AK Party, have always have, have ever since then been um, in the um, in the majority. Have, have, have mostly been in control. The coup in 1960 was the first, wasn't it? It was the first. Yeah, it was the first in the um, in the modern Turkish period. The first suffered by the Turkish Republic. There had been ones in the late Ottoman period where parliaments were overthrown. The will of the Sultan was um, questioned, but this was the very first one in the in, in the Republican period, and it was followed inevitably by any number of other ones, either successful or unsuccessful. In 1962, 1963, 71, 80, 97, and um, 2016. So, the worst thing about that first coup was that it was the example for so many others which have since followed and which have just kind of ever deepened the uh, rifts and the divisions in Turkish political and cultural 
life and society. It seems to have set a kind of an unflattering template for the country too. You, you said compared it to farmer strikes in France or, or missile tests in North Korea, the association of of Turkey with with constant military coups. That's the feeling I have. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I mean, one of the reasons I became aware of that was because before writing the various books that I've written on Turkey, I I did actually a lot of travel journalism and wrote about the country and the country's um, tourism kind of virtues, which I spent a lot of time doing and I love doing because it, it allowed me to get around the country and to explore it and to enjoy it. But I was forever running up against this other perception. I was trying to peddle this idea of beautiful beaches and wonderful classical ruins and all the rest of the stuff that we talked about at the beginning of this talk. But I always found there was this other image, this competing vision of, you know, people people being picked up at night, tanks on the streets, uh, the radio playing only the national anthem and everything else that goes with coups, this kind of grey and grisly vision. That was always kind of kicking against it. So I had a kind of personal experience of um, how that tradition of coups had had such a negative impact upon the otherwise very sunny perspective that people might have um, about the country, not least in deciding whether it's a place they want to visit on holiday. Well, I suppose too, like the the image that a film like Midnight Express leaves <laughs> for the foreign visitor is it can't help yeah. that. Uh, yeah. I actually saw that um, in Malta in Fort Saint Elmo. They they renovated Fort Saint Elmo at the at the bottom of you know the peninsula that Valletta sits yeah. on and reopened it. And then uh, for the Valletta Film Festival that year, they invited Alan Parker the first time he had come back since making that film and they screened it wow. right in Fort St. Elmo, right where they, they filmed the prison scenes. Wow. Really, really incredible. That is incredible because it seems to me, I'm assuming that decision was, was taken as a kind of, as a kind of act of vengeance almost. Um, Parker went on to say how he was really sorry about that film because it seemed to me, from the from the Turkophiles perspective, that it was a uh, it was a terrible vision of and it misrepresented Turks terribly as kind of uh, you know um, sodomites and um, uh, thugs and it was just it was a really really ugly vision of a country and certainly my experience of Turks has been utterly the opposite. I think they're the most wonderful people. You know, you you end up coming down to these kind of tropes about the fact that they can be they can be cruel and they can be bad tempered, and certainly there is a temper in kind of Turkish people, and there's a strong sense of honour, and you don't want to get on the wrong side of that. But broadly speaking, I think they're the most wonderful, giving, kind people. And one of the tragedies is that they've got themselves into this polarised political position where the two sides do not appear to be able to abide each other, and they can't find common ground. And actually, in writing this Menderes book, what I was trying to do was to take a figure who is so contentious in Turkey, because people either see him as the great hero of traditional Turkish values, or as the great traitor, the ultimate traitor of Ataturk's vision. And they can't abide even the possibility of reaching any kind of accommodation with the other side. And what I wanted to do with this book was to take a figure who it seems to me symbolizes precisely that division and to represent him as a human being with all the faults, with all the kind of complicated nuance of character, which, let's face it, um, uh, comp- comprises all of us. 
Um, and I think that was the case with him. I recognized that he was vindictive. I recognized that he made some very poor decisions. I also recognized that he was clearly very charismatic, very capable, very intelligent. Um, and what happened to him seems to me to have been a terrible thing. Anyway, the writing about him as a human being, uh, as I say, with all that kind of complexity, was my attempt to show to the two sides, actually, that this is where you might be able to find a way to begin to appreciate the other person's position. That really came out when you were writing about the trial section of the book. So the military removes uh, Menderes, casts him away on the Princess Islands, and puts him through this pretty uh, ugly, almost a, in part a sham trial. And when you were researching this, you're, you're talking to a, your friend called uh, Metin in the book. Metin or Metin? He was mad at you for trying to be neutral and for sketching a balanced assessment of him. And he said, uh, not taking sides is simply not a Turkish position. The picture you sketch of the trial, I really recommend getting reading the book. It's, it's really interesting. And his death is just not deserved. It sounded horrible. I think that, I mean, the, the other thing I, I'd love to say about the book is that it's, um, yeah, I was drawn to it because it is an, it is an extraordinary story. I mean, the drama of of the overthrow and then of what they do to him, the humiliation that they heap upon him in an attempt to discredit this man, in an attempt to make his uh, followers realise that he's not quite the hero figure they thought he was, is, oh, it's so painful and it's so vicious and ugly. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, for me, that was kind of part of the draw of this story, that it is an extraordinary and a little known story outside of Turkey, partly, I think, because Turks, whichever side they're on, feel a kind of sense of shame about what happened to him. You know, you do not hang your first democratically elected prime minister for political reasons. You simply don't do that. And yet they did. It's fascinating, too, how it sort of bookends um, Ataturk. It's almost like the yin and yang of he's just as polarizing a figure for the opposite reasons. So it leaves me with two, two questions as we kind of come to the end here. Has Turkey squandered the Ottoman legacy of tolerance? I think it's. I think it's certainly lost it. I'm not sure whether it was squandered. I think the other way to look at it is actually that the Ottoman legacy of tolerance persisted so much longer than it was than, than it persisted anywhere else, almost in the world. So you had that sense of this kind of empire hanging on into the modern world, even into the kind of into the nineteen the early 1920s, hanging on. Um, with all these kind of ideas halfway intact, but surrounded by increasingly nationalistic nation states, which were anything but tolerant. So I think it was inevitable that it was going to happen. It's kind of very hard to imagine how any kind of nation in the modern world can exist without having a very strong sense of its national kind of um, DNA, if you like. So I wouldn't say squandered, lost certainly, but I don't think there was anything they could have done about it. And I guess my second question would be related to that as well. Like the what we're seeing now with with Erdogan, is it an issue of religion in Turkey, or is it just part of the larger global tide of resurgent nationalism? It's kind of a a response to the downsides of globalization that we're seeing in so many other places. I think the two are sort of um, hand in hand. What? Erdogan's done is he's managed to re-establish the idea that part, an essential, integral part of the Turkish character and of the Turkish national idea is Islam. And that was something that Ataturk had attempted 
to separate. He had attempted to say that we are we are modern, we are Western, and the, as to the whole question of religion, that's an entirely private person down to you. It is not it is not part of the, the national character at all. Erdogan has managed to reverse that. He's managed to reinsert Islam into that definition of what it is to be a Turk. And I think that is such a fascinating tussle going on there between two conflicting ideas as to what constitutes um, a nation. And I think about Britain, for example, if only because I'm here. And it seems to me that that whole kind of question about religion simply doesn't play that role anymore, perhaps because we're, broadly speaking, quite a sort of non-religious peoples. Um, but it really doesn't seem to matter who, um, uh, who who feels strongly about religion. And, and, and it's an entirely private business. And that's what Ataturk was really hoping for. And he couldn't quite get there. And that's what Erdogan has managed to reverse. So we've talked a lot about these divisions in the society in, in modern Turkey and, and the rich cultural history. But I, I don't want to close on a note of kind of dissension. There, there was a section in the beginning of the book, I think around chapter one, where you talked about you know, the capital's snowbound winters, sitting with strangers over glasses of raki, the infinite courtesies of the people, how they welcome you into their homes and stuff. So give me a sense of what made you fall in love with the place and keeps you going back. Yeah, I mean, all of that is true. And I could trot out an endless list of all the kind of slightly predictable stuff to explain what it is that I love about the place. But in fact, it's probably a more impressive way to approach this by just kind of saying when I go back to places that I love in Turkey, particularly the ancient sites like Panara, I don't know if you've ever even heard of Panara. It's one of those lost cities in the hills um, down near Fethiye, a town on the south coast. It's just one of countless beautiful, beautiful places um, where you just kind of sit and you feel time and the kind of the span of time there, particularly in the theatre there. It's one of the most beautiful theatres. Often there'll be goats walking past with a shepherd. And it's just, it, it, Turkey is just full, absolutely stuffed with, with amazing things. And I'm not just talking about ruins, I'm talking about the landscapes as well. And all of this tied in with the kind of, as, as I said, as you said earlier, the courtesies of the people and the food. It all just works. It's just... It's just such a delight to travel that country. And, um, you know, every time I can persuade somebody to go there and fall in love with it, I think I've kind of done what I was sort of put on this earth to do, really. Well, you certainly got me very curious to go back and to, to dig deeper. Well, thank you very much for, for sharing your love of this country with us. It's, it's a, been really interesting. And what's, what's next for you? Well, I'm, at the moment, I'm writing a novel just because lockdown did not allow me to get back to Turkey. So I'm having a complete Turkey break, really. I do run tours there. I mean, I run cultural tours on beautiful gulets, which are lovely timber schooners. And we haven't managed to run them this year because, because of COVID. But in normal years, I run these cultural tours through a website called www.somewherewonderful.com. So if anybody wants to travel in Turkey, with me, then that's the place to look. I'll put a link to this uh, as well as your other social media links in the uh, in the show notes. That's something I'd really like to do, actually. Take, take a tour of the of the coast in one of these boats, but with a group of of like minded friends. You know, like pick the right crew to go with you, the right group of people. How many people would I need to to rustle up for that? Well, the the, the boat that I use, sort of twelve. I mean, you obviously want to get as many as possible to bring down the costs, and twelve is kind of optimum. 
and they're beautiful. I mean, they're they're beautiful boats with kind of double cabins with en suites and huge, great kind of rear decks are just kind of lounging around on. All the food is done. You swim from the boat. You, you put ashore and look at ruins, and um, it's just great. It's lovely. It's just another aspect of what I love about the country. Ah, it's such an interesting place. Well, thank you very much for for taking the time to talk with us today. It's a pleasure, Ryan, and um, enjoy. Oh, enjoy your. You see, lucky you in Berlin. I have a couple places in Bath where I live, but the Turkish food here does not compare with yours. I suspect. Well, I, I hopefully we'll cross paths either here or in in Turkey at some point. I hope so. All right. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to speak, Ryan. Thanks for that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorn.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. Thank you.